Welcome to Inside the Castle, the podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts for today, Lauren Mike. And I'm Angie Fryermuth. Today we have two guests helping us learn more about the Corps' climate change research efforts. With us today are Dr. Joseph Corvo, Director of the Cold Regions Research and Engineering Laboratory, or CREL, that is part of the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center, and Dr. Tom Douglas, who is a senior scientist at CREL's Alaska Laboratory. Thank you both for joining us here today. Thank you, Angie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Greetings from Fairbanks, Alaska. Well, thank you both. For today's episode, we are looking forward to learning more about the Corps' research efforts on climate change and its impacts. But before we dive into the questions, we always like to start our episodes off by getting to know our guests. So we would first like to know more about you two and your current positions in the Corps. Dr. Corvo, let's start with you. Yeah, hi. Actually, uh, I've been with the United States Army for for over 30 years now. I I came to the Army after getting a a doctorate in uh, molecular biology. Before coming over to the Corps, I was in one of the laboratories that's now part of Army Futures Command. And uh, about four years ago, there was, there was an opportunity to come over and be the director of the Cold Regions Lab up here in Hanover, New Hampshire, a laboratory that, that I, I've always been a huge fan of the laboratory and its, its amazing uh, mission. I, I competed for the position, and here I am in Hanover, New Hampshire. Couldn't be happier as the director for Krell. That's great. Hi, and this is Tom. I, I'm sort of uniquely suited to work for Krell because we have offices in New Hampshire and Alaska. And I've split about half my life in both of those states. I was born and raised in Contoogook, New Hampshire, went to college there, came up here to Fairbanks to work on a master's degree and work um, in ore deposit geology for a little while, flying around looking for gold. I went back for a PhD, back to New Hampshire, um, and then moved back up here in 2001, and I've worked at Krell in our Fairbanks office ever since. Thank you for that introduction. The course has research labs across the country. Can you tell us a little bit more about these labs and why the research being conducted in these labs is so important to the nation and to the world? Dr. Corvo, we'll start with you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, A pleasure. We're we're very fortunate to be part of, uh, the the Corps of Engineers has uh, ERDEC, which is uh, headquartered down in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and uh, ERDEC has seven laboratories uh, sprinkled across the country. Uh, the, the bulk of the laboratories are located down in Vicksburg, Mississippi, uh, which, which is uh, the, historically was the Waterways Experimental Station, uh, which was established uh, by the Corps of Engineers as a result of the, uh, the Great Mississippi Floods of 1927. And so cur- currently down there in Mississippi, you, you have the uh, four of the laboratories uh, to include uh, – in Vicksburg, Mississippi, you, you have the uh, Environmental Laboratory – you, you have the Coastal and Hydraulics Laboratory, the Geotechnical and Structures Laboratory, and the Information Technology Laboratory. Uh, out in Illinois, there is the uh, Construction and Engineering Research Laboratory. In Virginia, there is the Geospatial Research Laboratory. And then up in Hanover, New Hampshire, you have the Cold Regions Laboratory. When it comes to tackling the climate crisis, all of these laboratories have a set of, of core competencies that can be used to address various aspects of the climate crisis. Uh, for example, when you think about the climate crisis, uh, there's going to be tremendous issues related to potential flooding or sea level rise, 
And of course, uh, when you look at the very origins of the Waterways Experimental Station down in, in Vicksburg, Mississippi, right away you can see that there's a tremendous uh, capability down there for, for doing research and development to, to bring solutions to the Corps of Engineers in the nation. And of course, when it comes to the Cold Regions Lab, uh, we were established because back in 1942, the Corps of Engineers had to build the Alaska Canadian Highway. Uh, it was like a 1,400 mile or so highway, uh, which they built in a number of months. And one of the hugest challenges they had in, in building the Alaska Canadian Highway was permafrost. The origins of, of the Cold Regions Lab come from the challenges the Corps of Engineers had with permafrost uh, back in the, the days of World War II. Tom, maybe, maybe you'd like to uh, amplify uh, our story uh, about uh, permafrost in Alaska, where you are today. Yeah, great. Thank you. So in the, in the 40s, that when the Alaska Highway was built, and, and frankly, that's one of the most amazing engineering marvels humans have ever done. It was 1,500 miles in one summer across pretty difficult remote terrain. They quickly learned, unfortunately, that uh, after you remove the protective vegetation over permafrost, it degrades pretty quickly. So everyone's probably seen those old photos of vehicles buried to their axles in mud. And that led to a lot of interest in engineering, obviously airfields, pipelines, and roads. So in the mid-40s, basically our, our parent lab that became Krell, the St. Paul District of USACE, started a set of research projects in farm, at a farm site we called Farmer's Loop here in Fairbanks. We're actually still working there 80 years later. Um, they had a bunch of experimental buildings and different ways to design uh, pavements and, and whatnot. And then um, in the early, you know, sort of into the 50s, some large projects were related to ice cores. And then Camp Century in Greenland, which is a pretty not very well-known project, but the idea was an a city under the ice that was basically hidden from above to add to our nuclear arsenal. So a way to sort of hide or make very hard to discover uh, nuclear weapons. Um, however, at that time, people didn't really know ice sheets were ever moving. And so that was kind of a rude awakening once they built kilometers of tunnels to watch them slowly fracture and move. And, and Camp Century was never finished. But around that time in the, mid, in the 60s, uh, Krell was stood up in 1961. We actually just had our 60th anniversary about a month ago. And in Fairbanks, we started digging our permafrost tunnel. And that is now, we're, we just finished actually additional excavations of that tunnel. We have a third of a mile of subsurface excavations across permafrost. It kind of looks like an ant farm now. It's, it's different tunnels of different levels that meet one another. Um, and it's going to be, it's, it's a world-renowned site already, but it's going to continue to establish uh, geotechnical, geophysical, ecology, all sorts of those types of studies. And as we move into the future, I mean, we've, we've supported um, activities on Mars. So drill bits and rover tires, um, our permafrost tunnel is actually a pretty good uh, proxy for Mars. And then uh, in, in the future, we're starting to use things like drone technology to remotely sense the ground surface. So um, from, you know, digging a road through the middle of nowhere in the 40s to using drones to map ice, um, it's been a long kind of exciting 80 years of effort. Wow, yeah, thank you for that. That's amazing. I didn't know that we were um, also helping out with things in outer space. That's got to be a great thing to, to tell your kids as well <laughs> when you talk about what you do. So, Dr. Douglas, can you talk a bit further? You know, I know that 
as you mentioned, this is a world-renowned site, so I'm assuming that there are other partners, um, agencies, groups, and, and international folks that you work with. Can you talk about how you work with other groups to partner on research? Yeah, sure, and I won't just focus on the tunnel, I and mean, I think it's pretty obvious the Corps of Engineers works all over planet Earth, so we have tons of partners. We work with a lot of university and industry partners predominantly. We make things that turn into patents or tools or protocols. Um, we do a lot of, you know, peer-reviewed science as well. You know, we make widgets and tools, as engineers would kind of say it. So, so again, our partners are extremely broad depending on which state or country we're working in. From Krell's perspective, uh, because we're in New England and Alaska, we work a lot with, up here in Alaska, we work with the University of Alaska system. Um, there's a, a really strong university here in Fairbanks, and there's also another university we work with in Anchorage. In Hanover, they work with Dartmouth College, University of New Hampshire, um, and then across the border in Vermont, University of Vermont, and then the other side, University of Maine, among many others. Uh, and I would say, obviously, we get technical know-how and, and these sort of wonderful partnerships and agreements with universities. We also hire a ton of people from these universities. So in our Fairbanks office, most of us have some sort of degree from University of Alaska. Many people in Crow Hanover, and actually including myself, we have degrees from Dartmouth, so there's a nice partnership there just right down the road from the Krell site, um, University of New Hampshire, University of Maine, and Vermont as well. So in some ways, it's sort of like a try it before you buy it for students and for us. You know, we can interact with young up-and-coming researchers and engineers. They learn more about what we do, and they're, they're usually clamoring to come work for us, and uh, we luckily get to have a sense of which ones are the best fit. So it's really a, a kind of a long-term relationship we have, you know, with these different universities. And, and of course, it's the government, there's a bunch of different sort of partnerships and agreements that we can establish uh, to facilitate that collaboration. Obviously, the infrastructure that the Corps has built and continues to construct will have to contend with the climate change impacts. Through the Corps' research, are we able to see how climate change is affecting or will affect the Corps' infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the, the Corps has a tremendous mission of, of building infrastructure uh, both in, in the civilian side of the house as well as for DOD. The Corps, under the leadership of Kate White up, up in headquarters, developed the Army Climate Assessment Tool and subsequently the DOD Climate Assessment Tool, which really has, has helped the department to assess installations in, in terms of their exposure to uh, the climate of the future or to extreme weather events. And so these tools uh, allow you to, to take a look at vulnerabilities that can be brought about by flooding or drought, wildfires, extreme weather events, or land degradation to, even, to include, for example, a thaw and permafrost. And so it, it, tools like this have clearly given uh, not only the core, but the DOD insights into how vulnerable they are uh, with, with installations regarding uh, what we expect to happen because of climate change in, in the future. Great, thank you for talking through those impacts. To better understand, you know, some of the climate change impacts that the Corps will have to contend with going forward and, and the world um, in that matter, what are some of the specific research projects that you all have um, undertaken to help the Corps better address climate change? Um, Dr. Douglas, we'll start with you first on this question. Great, thank you. Uh, yeah, what, what's the Corps doing to help plan for a, a more uncertain future? It's one of my favorite questions because it's a topic area I work on pretty much every day 
I'll give you a little bit of perspective sort of from the Alaska, for, you know, Alaska and this area. There's a thing called Arctic amplification, which simply stated, you could imagine as the sea ice goes away, uh, think of that as the ice cubes in your glass of lemonade just melting and disappearing on a hot summer day. It's leading to Earth's high latitudes warming at two to five times lower latitude. So um, I'll give you an example in the Fairbanks area. Uh, we've warmed nine degrees Celsius over the past 10,000 years, okay? So coming out of an ice age, we warm nine degrees. Three of those are since the 1970s. So it took us almost 10,000 years to warm six degrees, and in 45 years, we warmed another three. We're projected to warm another five by 2100. So right now, our mean annual temperature is right around freezing, which means our permafrost is pretty close to stability, unstability um, areas. Obviously, in a, in a plus 5C, you know, in sort of a warmer world, there'll be a lot of problems with that. The way we try to address that, I, I think of this in a couple ways. One, when you construct something, you assume a 50 to 100-year lifespan, right? That's kind of the, either the age of a person or the amount of time you'd expect a building or a pipeline or something to work. How do you project into this uncertain future? So, obviously, we use climate models, we use those types of things, sensors, geotechnical and engineering measurements. The issues we have are you can't usually take things that work in warmer places and just plop them up here and expect it to work. Not only it might not work, whatever infrastructure you're building, whatever technologies you're using, but also the ground literally might be changing beneath you. So the ways we address these are we are updating things like unified facilities criteria, which sounds like kind of a boring, nerdy thing, but it's literally how the federal government okays the construction and design of buildings for cold regions that hasn't been updated in almost 50 years. Another piece is we're looking at a lot of different ways to basically keep the ground cold. There's a wonderful thing called a thermosiphon, which if you look at a picture of the Alaska pipeline, there are something like 80,000 of them spread along its 800 miles. They're little passive cooling devices that when the air temperature is colder than the ground, they pretty much suck cold into the ground. Um, we're finding that the pipeline is increasingly getting out of design spec. It was designed almost 50 years ago. And so we're looking at things like solar panels and, and small refrigerant coil to create what we would call um, hybrid or active thermosiphons, basically little refrigerators that keep the ground cold. The way I think about this is, is people use the word resilience, and, and that's obviously everyone kind of has their own definition of that. Um, I think biologists use it the best, and I think in current times, I would say I look at, so my daughter's 13, she and her schoolmates have been quite resilient through COVID, right? I think adults have been more affected by this, frankly, than kids have. They roll with stuff. They bounce off things. They scrape their knee. They get back up. We need to build things that are resilient like that. So when the ground moves, when the snow load changes, when the timing of your shoulder seasons change, when your temperatures change, the building can either be adapted or has sensors or ways to automatically adapt to that. So basically buildings need to be more like kids. And, uh, and we're trying to, you know, that sounds really simple, but we're trying to use really high-end, uh, you know, computer simulations, mapping, planning, geospatial tools, climate models, all of that, spin that together to basically right now design the infrastructure we'll need in the future. Dr. Corvo, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I, I, I do. I, I appreciated Tom's discussion of, of resilience because because basically the, the kind of tools that the Corps of Engineers has been developing to, to assess climate vulnerability for infrastructure 
Uh, one of the things you can look at to reduce that vulnerability is, you know, some type of adaptive capacity or, or the ability to provide uh, solutions which will, if you will, protect the, uh, that infrastructure against climate exposure and, and various sensitivities to, to climate change. So I think there's tremendous potential there for the Corps of Engineers to be coming up with uh, a variety of different types of solutions to enhance the, the resilience and adaptive nature of our infrastructure to protect this. And, and that could be, for example, uh, there, there's a program uh, called Engineering with Nature in, in which you actually engineer nature such that you can reduce the risk of uh, coastal erosion uh, and therefore you're, you're, you're kind of countering uh, sea level rise. And of course you can go inland to use engineering with nature to come up with uh, adaptive approaches to protect uh, critical areas from flooding. So there's much that the Corps of Engineers can do to help our nation to make its infrastructure more resilient to the approaching climate crisis. As we look to the future, Dr. Corvo, what do you foresee as the major climate change impacts that we will need to have uh, our infrastructure prepared to deal with in the future? And, you know, what are we doing to help the Corps address those impacts? Right. I believe that a lot of the impacts going to go back to uh, water. <laughs> and this is where I think that where the Institute of Water Resources is, is going to be so vital to, to, uh, to the Corps and to the nation. Right now I'm thinking of Tom earlier brought up uh, the, the ice cores that were uh, taken out of the uh, Greenland ice sheet by the Corps of Engineers back in the 1960s. So I'll tell you a little anecdotal story you know, to kind of make my point. The Corps of Engineers has, has been involved in the understanding of climate change for decades. I think one of the earliest examples in the 60s when we pulled these ice cores out of the Greenland ice sheet, one of the ice cores in particular was almost a, a mile long. And they were able to, uh, scientists, working with scientists uh, around the world, we, we were able to use those ice cores to look backwards in history to see what the uh, temperature of our climate was and to see uh, the levels of greenhouse gases. And it was through those scientific endeavors that we, we know that over time, that as the greenhouse gases uh, increase, there's a correlation with uh, the temperature. The, something else that we know uh, based on work that the Corps of Engineers has done is, is, is the following. At the bottom of that ice core that was almost a mile long was sediment. Recently, just across the river from me uh, in the state of Vermont, at the University of Vermont, they discovered uh, basically plant fossils at, at the bottom of that uh, ice core that was removed from uh, Greenland by, by the Corps of Engineers uh, half a century ago. And what, what that tells us is that once upon a time, about 400,000 years ago, there was no ice there and there were plants growing. And uh, imagine the following. All the water that's in that ice that was almost a mile deep, where, where was that water 400,000 years ago? Well, here's, here's the answer. If the ice sheet on Greenland were to melt, sea level would rise over 20 feet. And you know, whenever I think about that, I, um, it, it's hard to get your head around that. But 
what I'm trying to say is I think the greatest challenge we're going to have going into the future is for the Corps to figure out what to do about all this water when it comes to sea level rise and flooding. And then on the other hand, there's also going to be drought on, on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, with that said, I, I think what's going to happen as, an, as our, our nation is going to be looking at mechanisms by which we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, therefore um, try to turn around the, the warming nature of our planet. Uh, that's where I think the Corps of Engineers is going to have to put a lot of focus. It's, it's in its mission with uh, our coastlines and our internal waterways. What do you think, Tom? Hey, thank uh, you. covered a lot there. I, I think the, the thing, the couple things I'd add, um, I sort of go back to this idea of in most infrastructure projects, again, you think about a 50 to 100-year lifespan. And, and I really like to think about the idea of a 100-year flood, right? So whether you have a little tiny creek or the Mississippi River, you know, USGS or others can give you a map of if you stand right here for the next 100 years, it'll probably flood one time. Obviously, that's kind of like in a lifetime. It seems like it's very far away seems like maybe a maximum risk to plan for. What we're seeing in a lot of rivers, frankly, is these 100-year floods are happening every 10 years, every 15 years. We're getting 1,000-year events. And I use that analogy to think about all the uncertainties we're dealing with, right? They're over space and time. They compound with one another. And because most of the main drivers for climate warming are emissions that are sort of a global source thing, economics, uh, worldwide efforts or lack of efforts play a role, stability and instability. Obviously, there's engineering ideas. Can we suck carbon out of the air? Can we, you know, seed clouds? Can we do whatever? But those things will be very expensive and very small scale compared to what little things every single human on Earth can do to play their role. Obviously, the core doesn't work at this at that level, right? But we need to be able to plan for and respond for Basically, 50 years from now, how are humans acting and interacting on Earth, and what is that doing to a climate with which we need to be able to say 50 years from now, can you stand next to this river or not? Um, that type of uh, equivalent with, a, a, you know, a building or a pipeline or a road. Again, I'll say coastal challenges, water, water uncertainty and instability, the desert southwest, extreme heat, and then up here, the big one is what's going to happen with the permafrost, because when it's frozen, it's like concrete. You can drive on it, you can use it, you can uh, walk on it, you can build on it. When it starts to thaw, it becomes very uncertain. And that's, you know, a big piece of kind of research and, and questions up here. Thank you. That, those were all great examples of, of what the Corps is doing to address some of the impacts that we might feel into the future. And, and I for sure have learned a lot about uh, these efforts, and I thank you all for for joining us today. As we near the end of our time together, we wanted to, to ask you both for any final thoughts. You know, you both are doing very interesting and exciting work, so we wanted to make sure we offer you an opportunity to, to talk about anything else that you think our listeners would like to hear. So let's see, I've been working here for 20 years now, and though I, I like to think of myself as, as a young, uh, you know, vibrant, creative researcher, and what gives me hope and what I think is a really exciting aspect of what we do, um, I mentioned earlier, you know, we partner with a lot of universities and whatnot, uh, working with sort of younger generations, newer ideas, new ways to look at the world, just new ways to interact with each other. You know, you look at all these studies of how different generations um, behave with one another, and I think that's just fascinating. I think it's a wonderful way to bring in new ideas and new thinking. Um, 
ultimately, most people think of science and engineering as really boring, really nerdy, really specific things. But actually, scientists and engineers are some of the most creative people. We may not be creating art, but you could argue some of the things we construct are sort of works of art. But we have to be creative to bring in new ideas, new suggestions, to address all these uncertainties out there. Uh, a one-size-fits-all approach doesn't, isn't going to work. So what kind of jazzes me up and gives me hope for the future is, is obviously technology moves really fast, and there's a lot of uh, you know, wonderful levels of expertise across the core. But I just love the new ideas that come from working with groups of people. I'm really looking forward for this COVID thing to be past us um, so we can get back to having, you know, really cool project meetings again in person um, and sort of interacting with one another and just building that creative part of science that I think is very underexpressed and underexposed. Again, I think it's a key piece of just the scientific effort, and uh, I wish people saw that as kind of more of an important thing, and I think in the future it definitely will be. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Douglas. I, I know we feel you on the on getting past the the COVID pandemic and, and getting back to those in-person meetings because it does help uh, really foster ideas and creativity going forward. Um, Dr. Korovo, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to uh, wrap up by saying that I'm so honored to be part of an organization uh, like the, the Corps of Engineers that, that just has a tremendous broad capability when it comes to the uh, these strategic challenges facing our nation. And, and, and I'd like to say that right now we've been challenged by uh, uh, this executive order to to tackle the climate crisis. And uh, what, what appears to be on the horizon is, is a, uh, I think, a related challenge of doing something, doing something about the infrastructure of our nation. And I, I can't think of an organization better prepared and postured to, to help our great nation go forward with solutions when it comes to climate change, as well as solutions for uh, a new generation of infrastructure. And I, I think these two strategic drives forward are going to be interrelated. And I, I'm just really happy to be a part of it and uh, excited about the future when it comes to uh, being part of the Corps of Engineers solving these amazing challenges for our nation. Great. Well, thank you both for those inspiring final thoughts. Really appreciate it. And really appreciate you joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you what topics are important to you and people you're interested in hearing from. Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.